Thank you. You can be seated. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And when you get there, I want you to hold your spot. We'll be there here in just a bit. Uh, But 1 Timothy 6 is where we're going to be focusing on uh, primarily. Well, if you were like me this past Monday night, some of you stayed up a little too late. You're watching a ball game. The uh, uh, college national championship game was that night, Ohio State and uh, Oregon. And, um, you know, I was looking forward to that game, not because I'm a big fan of either one of those teams, uh, but I wanted to see a good game. You know, I had made my predictions, you know, of what I thought the score was going to be. And, uh, and I will say that I was really, really close in regards to the score. I just had the teams mixed up. Uh, I, I thought Oregon was just going to blow them off the field, and I was very, very surprised, as some of you may have been, uh, by the fact that Ohio State did that to them and uh, came away as a national, national champions. Well, some of you may have watched you know, afterwards and you saw some of the interviews and you're just total college football junkies and you, know, you, you stayed with it the whole week. I remember being on a, uh, on a, somewhere online and I remember seeing a, a, a mention of Urban Meyer and, uh, and in an interview and how he was talking about that game and he was talking about really what pulled it together for them. And in the midst of that interview, he mentioned a book. The title of the book was Lead for God's sake. That was the title of the book. It was not a book he wrote. He wrote a foreword to that book a couple of years ago, but he didn't write the book himself. And it was interesting because he mentioned that specific book, and he talked about the impact that it had on their coaches and and leadership. He talked about how that trickled down to the players and how it played its way out throughout the course of the season, the midst of adversity. And he mentioned this particular book, Lead for God's Sake. You could not go online and order that book and have it delivered because it was backordered virtually everywhere, and it was out of stock virtually everywhere because of what he mentioned. And it's almost as though people are hungering to see a connection between success and some principles or formula or strategy to help lead them to success. People are clamoring for that. Now, there, there's some danger in that because there are no quick fixes to anything. Uh, but I think there is also some validity to the fact that oftentimes when there is a purpose that is clear, when there is a purpose that is well formulated, whenever there is an end in sight and that end is the proper end and not the wrong destination, it really helps when you can connect that to the success that we have in our lives. For us as a church, for example, a number of years ago, we began to look at what, what does God want from us as a church? What defines success, so to speak, from God's perspective? What, what are we supposed to be about as a church? What are we supposed to be about as individual Christians? I mean, what does God desire for us? And for us, we, we have four words that really drive virtually everything that we do. We put these in place years ago. And those four words are on the front of your bulletin when you came in today. Uh, you often see them displayed on our website or displayed on banners and just uh, all different places and all different ways and different times. And those four simple words are know, grow, show, and go. And it's what drives us as a church. You may think, well, I don't really understand what those four words mean. Well, they simply stand for what God wants of us as believers. He wants us to know him. He wants us to grow deeply in our relationship with him, not just hang out on the surface, not just to be content with the fact that we prayed a little prayer, uh, but he wants us to grow and to mature in our faith. He wants us to ultimately show Christ and to put Christ on display through the lives that we live as we inside, serve inside and outside the walls of the church. And he wants us to go with the gospel. It's what he wants of us. Here's the cool thing. We can evaluate ourselves as a church as to whether or not we're doing that well. We can evaluate the ministries we engage in. We can evaluate the ministries we give to. We can evaluate the programs we do, the curriculum we use, everything we do. We can evaluate a church service as well for whether or not it is helping us to do those four things, to lead people to know, to grow, to show, and to go. That's what God's called us to do. There are a lot of other things we could be doing, but we feel like if we can accomplish those things, then we're doing faithfully 
what God has called us as a church to do. Last Sunday, we looked at Romans 8, 29, and how God has his desire, even since before we were born, his, his predestined desire is that we be conformed and molded and shaped into the image of Christ. That's what God wants of us. And so for we as churches, we have to be all about the business of helping to lead people to be molded into the image of Jesus, not just have good services, not just do flashy programs, not just you know, do the things that we want to do, but we have to be about helping to lead people through that process of knowing God, of growing deeply in their relationship with Him, of showing Christ, and of going with the message of the gospel. Here's the thing for you as a, as a Christian, as a person, you can do all four of those things every single day. You can make it your goal, your aim even, every day when you lay your head down at night, you can look back and say, what have I done today to help me to know God more clearly? What have I done today to help me to grow deep in my faith? What have I done today to show Christ, to put him on display? What have I done today to go with the message of the gospel, to tell somebody about Jesus? And so it's, a, it's a, such an effective tool. It's so helpful for us to be able to define what is the end God is aiming for in our lives for us as churches, that we be like Christ, we help others the same, to do the same. And then how is it we're going to get there? And so we've been going through this series. We started last Sunday, continuing it today. We'll finish up two weeks from now. Going through this series of just looking at those four words individually. And so last Sunday we started, we flipped it around in reverse, we did it backwards, which fits me well because I'm kind of backwards anyway, so it kind of, kind of way a roll. So we started upside down. We started last Sunday with going with the gospel, what it means to go with the gospel, how we can be uh, willing and intentional and just through our normal, you know, lives that God's given us, how we can go and how we can pray for boldness and opportunities and wisdom, B-O-W, boldness, opportunities, wisdom, how we can pray and, and be faithful to take the message of the gospel. That was last Sunday. And so today what I want us to look at is what it means to show Christ, just a simply titled message, Showing Christ. One of the four primary things that we seek to do as a church, hopefully one of the four biggies that you try to do through your daily life as well, putting Christ on display as you serve others, both inside the walls of the church, and outside the walls of the church as well. Why is this important? Why is it that when we sit down and we make a list of the top four things we feel like God wants of us, why do we put showing Christ as one of them? Here, here's one, one reason I believe. It's because when you look at the first century church, the most compelling argument for the validity of the gospel in their lives, the most compelling argument in the culture in which they lived was that they put Christ on display in the context of a changed life. To the point to where historians a century later, two centuries later, would look back to the first century. And they would look back into first century life, in the lives of those early believers, the early church. And they would say, as they chronicled history, that people took note of how they lived their lives. That in the midst of their culture, when there were those in need, they were the first to give. When they were the one, there, there were others that were suffering, it was the Christians, the body of Christ, that were the first to, to step into that suffering, to try to help alleviate, try to help bring relief to those that were suffering. It was the body of Christ that were the Christians. It was those Christians in that first century culture that most challenged their culture as they stood for truth, but that also most validated the truth as they gave of their lives to put Christ on display on an absolutely daily basis. And so when we look at what it means to show Christ, and we look at the importance, really there are a couple of reasons it is so important. One, it leads people to Christ, points people to Him, but two, it reflects Christ. Look, look at what it says here. You don't have to turn, but look in Acts, uh, the book of Acts chapter 10, verse 38. This is Luke writing a little bit about Jesus as he looks back on Jesus' life. He says, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, 
how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power and how he went about doing good. That's an interesting statement Luke chose to say. He could have pulled a lot of things out about who Jesus was when he walked this earth. But one of the ways he chronicles him there is that he went about doing good. Listen, when you and I choose to do good, it's not just doing good for goodness sake. It's, It's doing good with an intent to show Christ. That when we serve other people, inside and outside the walls of the church, when we do that, listen, according to this verse, we are reflecting our Savior. We are putting him on display. We are living life in the same exact way as he did. We are following his lead when we put him on display. And yet Matthew himself as well would say, if you look at Matthew chapter 5 up here on the overhead, Matthew would say that there's also not just a reflection, but also even our serving leads people to God. He says, let your light shine before men, he says, in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We looked at this verse just a couple of weeks ago. The people on the outside might see your good works. They might see what you do that is so uncharacteristic of a person, so unselfish, so giving, so sacrificial. They will look at our good works, right? And the only result is that they will give God glory (laughs) because of what they see in us. So why is this important? Why do we we have as, as our big four, why do we have showing Christ? Because it reflects the Savior, reflects Jesus, and because it helps lead people to Him. It puts God on display. It puts God in center stage, so to speak, through our lives. It enables us to play a part in helping to impact others for the cause of Christ. Let me just let me just ask this. Would you then be surprised that if something is that important? That we as Christians are living lives not for ourselves, but to serve others and to show Christ. If it's that important, would you be surprised that there are not enemies that will come against that? Absolutely there are enemies. And I'll tell you, by and large, in this country today, churches are strangely silent. Churches are strangely disconnected from their communities. Churches are strangely ineffective in putting Christ out to those who desperately need to see him. It is, it is terribly important that we understand what it means to show Christ and that we understand the enemies that come against that. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, I had you turn there earlier. In 1 Timothy 6, just a short passage of Scripture here that I want us to take a, take a look at. And in this passage of Scripture, you're going to see a couple of the enemies. Let me just read through the first verse here, verse 17. 1 Timothy 6. If you have your Bibles, you can read along with me there. If not, it's on the overhead in front of you. Chapter 6, verse 17. The Apostle Paul is writing to uh, the young pastor, the young ministry leader, Timothy. And he says in verse 17, he says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Now you look at that passage and you think, well, Paul is talking about money. He's talking about finances, and certainly that is a part of this. It sounds as though Paul is talking primarily about money. In just a second, not right now, in just a second, we're going to read a little further. You're going to see that I believe there's more than just finances at stake here that Paul's dealing with. But when he mentions in verse 17, when he gives instructions to Timothy, this young pastor, to speak into the lives of their local church more than likely, he is telling them to be aware of a couple of different dangers, a couple of enemies 
to showing Christ. One he mentions when he says, tell the rich people among you not to be conceited. Now let me just say that when Paul would speak to Timothy in a first century culture, in a first century context, and he would say, I've got a message for the rich people. Understand that for most of us in our country sitting here today, regardless of whether you feel rich or not, in the eyes of the world, you are vastly rich. All right. So Paul is segmenting out, in this context, the rich people. For most people in our country, this is going to apply to us. Even if you don't have much, whether you live on fixed income or whether you don't, whether you're salary or hourly, none of that matters. Most of us in this country have far more than the, the, the people scattered around this world. For example, we have houses for our vehicles, don't we? I mean, we'll just kind of leave it at that. They're called garages. We have houses for our vehicles, while the majority of this world would be flabbergasted by such an idea. Okay, so Paul is speaking to the rich, which would apply to most of us in this country. And he says, tell the rich people this. He says, tell them, number one, not to be conceited. Tell them not to be conceited. In fact, I think we can somewhat summarize that by saying that Paul is dealing here with misunderstood purpose. Because when he's telling the rich people, don't be conceited, what he's saying is, make sure that the rich among you understand that what they have is not solely for themselves. Yes, God wants them to enjoy it. Last line, he richly supplies us with things to enjoy. Nothing wrong with God uh, or with us enjoying things that God gives us. However, sometimes we get our purpose a little bit out of whack, don't we? And we misunderstand the purpose for which God blesses us. Listen, God gives us what he gives us so that we can be blessings to those around us. God gives us not just our finances. He gives us our talents. He gives us our life experiences. He gives us our, uh, our, our personalities. He gives us and makes us who we are so that we can understand that our purpose is to put him on display. When we become conceited because of who we are or what we've done or what we have, when we become conceited, we completely miss our purpose. God did not create any of us to be cul-de-sacs that just harbor and, 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 and uh, amass all of the things that he gives us for ourselves. He didn't do that. He, he, he wants us to be more you know, like causeways in a sense, to where everything's just kind of flowing through us into the lives of others. He doesn't want us to be just reservoirs. He wants us to be rivers, so to speak, where things flow through our lives to the lives of others. He wants us to use our lives, every part of them, to put him on display. That's what he desires of us, so that when people see us, we live in such a way that they ultimately get to see what he looks like. I know it's a cheesy saying, and I know it's so overstated that, that you may be the only Jesus that others see. And I understand it's so, man, so overstated, but man, it is so true. So true, because you work with people, and you have people in your family, and you have people in your neighborhood, that their idea of who God is could not be more twisted and more off base because of horrible preaching they've heard, because of somebody that meant well, but they, their idea of God was not what Scripture says. And there are people all around you. And they just need to see what Christ looks like. And they need to see the, the validity of a changed life. And when we pack it in and we huddle around ourselves as Christians and we get all our little holy huddles and we, we just sort of you know, amass our stuff and we enjoy it all for ourselves and we, we you know, use our talents only to advance ourselves or to draw a paycheck, we never put Christ on display. What does that look like to the world? It looks like nothing more than prideful conceit, self-centeredness, selfishness, arrogance. Paul says, tell the rich people, tell them not to be conceited. In other words, tell them not 
to be misunderstanding of their purpose. That what they have been given is to enjoy, but they also, and you'll see this in a second, they are also given these things so that they can be blessings to those around them. And as they do, Matthew 5, God will get glory through the life that they live. So let me just ask a question up front before we go any further. When you look at your life as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, when you look at your life, would you say your default mode, okay, kind of the, your normal operating procedure, your standard operating procedure, the way you roll on a daily basis, would you say your default mode is one where you seek to serve others or where you seek to be served? Only you can answer this, right? So when you move through your daily routine, what is your default mode for your life? Is it to serve or is it to be served? Now for me, when I go into a restaurant, for example, when I go out to eat, when I walk into a restaurant, when I walk through the doors of that restaurant, here's my default mode, be served, right? It's probably the same for you. You go in, you place your order, you walk up to a counter or you have a seat and you look up at the menu or you read the menu and you place your order and you expect that that food is going to be delivered. It may be brought to your table. It may be handed to you in a bag. Uh, you, you can ask for a refill, whatever you want to do. I mean, our default mode, isn't it? In a restaurant, I think for most of us, is that we go there ultimately to be served. That's our default mode. And that's, I mean, that's really not far out of left field. I mean, that's kind of a no-brainer. I mean, that's what they do in restaurants. Here's the thing. We often carry that same mentality as Christians into our daily life so that we step into our job. We step onto our campus. We step out of our car, out of our houses and into our neighborhoods. And we step into society, into the culture. And that same attitude is what is prevalent in our lives. We step into the world expecting to be served. When our Savior has said, by his example, and Luke captures it for us in Acts 10, and Matthew captured it for us, that it's also our responsibility, that our example and our mandate is to step into that world, not to be served, but to serve. And as we do that, on a daily basis, on an individual level, collectively as churches, here's what happens. Jesus Christ gets put on, put, put on display through our lives. People get to see what he looks like. It's valid and authentic if we're walking with God Monday through Saturday as well. And it has an enormous impact on the lives of those who need a Savior. And so he calls us, ultimately, to put him on display, to show Christ. And yet one of the enemies of that is misunderstood purpose. We have a real tendency to think it is really all about us and that what I have is for me and that what I do is only my business and the way I live is up. nobody else needs to be concerned with that. It's my business. It's my life. It's my stuff and my money and my job and my car. And yet God says, no, I've given you these things and I've made you who you are so that you can show Christ and put him on display to lead people to him and for the glory of God. So enemy number one is a misunderstood purpose. Paul goes on here to say in verse 17, he says also, Timothy, tell the rich people there amongst you. He says, tell them, number one, not to be conceited, but he says, number two, also tell them not to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Again, Paul is talking seemingly about finances, financial resources here. In a second, we'll see that I believe he's talking about just more. But he says, tell the rich people not to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Where, where I think the first statement deals with purpose, I think this one deals with priorities, misaligned priorities. 
priorities that are out of whack. Not just purpose that's out of whack, but priorities that are out of whack. You know, we just came through a season here in our church where um, we collected an offering called the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. We don't do a whole lot Southern Baptist here. And when we do Southern Baptist stuff, we cooperate with the Southern Baptist Convention. But you don't hear me say a lot about Baptist stuff because to me personally, Baptist is not as important as being godly and Christian and Christ-like, those kinds of things. But we do certain things that have Baptist ties, so to speak. And that one offering, that Lottie Moon Christmas offering is one of those. Probably for most here, most are completely unfamiliar perhaps with who Lottie Moon is, except that we're still trying to pay her off every Christmas for whatever debt we are. It goes a little deeper than that. <laughs> Lottie Moon was an amazing person. She was born in 1840 in Virginia, born into wealth. She was proficient in seven languages. Um, she had anything she needed. All the bases were covered. And yet she felt early on in her life that God was calling her to the mission field. She felt this burden, this sense of call, that God is leading me out of my homeland, out of my country, into the mission field. And she answered that call, ultimately, where she would serve 39 years of her life up until her death in the country of China. Born in 1840, it would be the middle, latter part of the 1800s, early part of the 1900s that she would serve it is not uncommon to read stories of how she would take out of her daily allotment of food, the food ration that she had, and she would give out of her own resource to her own detriment so that those around her that were starving would have food to eat. She was only four feet three tall. She wasn't a very big woman at all. She was very small in stature, and yet the impact of her life ran very, very deep. It was an extremely powerful life that she lived. 1911, when revolution broke out, the missionaries in her region were pulled out by the U.S. consul, and yet all of them left except for her. <laughs> she stayed, despite the danger, despite the sacrifice, she stayed there because of her love for the people. She would embrace their dialect, she would embrace their customs, she would embrace their dress, she would embrace their lives. And yet in the midst of her service, this four-foot-three woman had a fire about her that is typically not recognized at Christmas time when we collect offerings that bear her name. She would get very, very fired up in regards to the lack of people available to show Christ in the country of China. In fact, some of her journal excerpts are evidence of that. We take a look at one of them. Just kind of read what her words are. This is out of a book called Ten Who Changed the World. Part of that book chronicles her life. It says, this is, these are her words, how inadequate our force here is a province of 30 million souls, and Southern Baptists can only send one man and three women to tell them the story of redeeming love. One cannot help asking sadly, why is love of gold more potent than love of souls? The number of men mining and prospecting for gold in Shantung, that's the province where she was, is more than double the number of men representing Southern Baptists. And that's fire in a pen right there. That's basically lighting up the people who are, home side, who are, who are stateside back home saying, what, on the, what in the world is going on? Where are the men that are needed? Because there are women here, she would say countless times. There are women here that are filling gaps that, that men should be filling. And why are there more here digging for gold to advance their own lives than there are people in our own country that are sacrificing and giving so that they might come to share a message that will never die? Whenever she would breathe her last at the age of 72, Christmas Eve of 1912, she would weigh no more than 50 pounds. She had given her life and she had given everything that she could. When she died on a boat in the Japanese harbor of Kobe, 
ultimately after her death, her belongings were packed into one trunk. And her bank account of $254 was cleared. One author would write about her life. The next quote, 20 years following her death, Chinese women in remote villages would ask, when will the heavenly book visitor come again? And their testimony about her was, how she loved us. That's showing Christ. Paul says, tell the rich people who have so much that God has given so much to. Tell them not to be conceited. Tell them not to miss their purpose for which God has given them what they have and made them who they are. Tell the rich people, Timothy, tell the rich people that beyond anything else, make sure that they don't misunderstand their purpose, that God desires them and he's left them here in this, in, in, in this land without calling them on to heaven yet. Tell them that he has left them here to put Christ on display. And at the same time, Timothy, he says, tell them that they do not have misguided priorities where they fix their hope on all of their riches and they think that, that a little more money here and a little more acquisition there and a little more stuff will, will cure their ills and will fill the voids in their life. Make sure that the rich people among you, Timothy, understand that God has given them what he has given them, not so they will trust in that, but that so they will seek to live their lives in honor, in sacrifice, in surrender to the one who gave them all of that in the first place so that he might be seen by those who need him and so that he might get the glory that only he is worthy of. And so Paul says, Timothy, tell them, tell them, tell them. And yet we come to the church today, churches that scatter the landscape of our country, both small and large. And as I said earlier, largely that church is silent and that church is non-existent in many ways and that church is disconnected from its community and that church cares only about what it can do for itself. Not the church as the institution because such a thing does not even exist. A church is the people who make it what it is. And the church has become that in this country because Christians have become that in this country. We live for us, not for others. You look at the next two verses in that passage of Scripture, and it's the reason why I feel like Paul is talking more about money, more than just about money, because look at his remedy. Paul says in verse 18 and verse 19, he says, instruct them, Timothy. He says, instruct them to do good. You know, if it was all just about money, Paul wouldn't go towards the aspect of works. Paul says, instruct them to do good. Instruct them to be rich in good works. Eric mentioned this passage, I, I think, covered it better than I can this past Wednesday night uh, with the students. He says, instruct them to do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. So that, here's the result, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Here's the picture. That last phrase is extremely important. He says, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. God desires us to have an abundant life. Jesus said it in John 10, 10. God doesn't want us to, to, to lack joy. He doesn't want us to lack purpose. He doesn't want us to miss life. What he wants is us to have life on his terms, not on ours. And real abundant life always comes on his terms, not ours. And so what Paul is saying here, he says, Timothy, make sure that the people do not miss their purpose. Make sure that their priorities do not get misaligned, but rather tell them and instruct them as often as you can for them to do good. Tell them to be rich in good works, not just to dabble in good works here and there when it's convenient. Tell them to be qualified by their good works, that when people look at them, that's how they qualify them. This is a person who is rich in good works. He says, tell them to do those kinds of good works. Tell them to be generous with what God has given them. Tell them to be, to be faithful, to share as God has given them the resource to do so. Because as they do that, Timothy, what's going to happen is 
Something is going to click on the inside, and they're going to see their part in the grand scheme of God, and they're going to see people impacted for the sake of the gospel, and they're going to see God get glory through their lives as they're generous and as they're faithful to serve and to do good works and put Christ on display. And when they get to that point, Timothy, they're going to understand what no other author could capture in any book on the New York Times bestseller list. They're going to understand what life is all about. And so, Timothy, just tell them. Tell them as often as you can to have the right purpose, to have the right priorities, to be generous and to share and to do good works and to be rich in good deeds. Tell them, tell them, tell them, tell them. Because when they do that, as they show Christ, man, they're going to they're gonna capture what life is all about. So tell them. And for us in this church, hopefully now when you begin to look at a bulletin or you look at a banner or you look at a website and you see, you know, what's up with the whole no grow, show go stuff? I think there are more things important than that. What about fellowship? (laughs) What about this? What about that? Hopefully now, at least for the whole show, you can see why it's so important. Because there's an awful lot at stake. You know, for me as a pastor, I think there are some things that are are somewhat misunderstood. And and I was the same way when I I was a kid, and I would look at people in ministry. I would think, you know, they it's like they have a different component or something, like they get a free pass. (laughs) And and I'm a pastor, and I don't get a free pass, I promise. You know, we walk the same walk, all of us, and we face the same challenges, the same difficulties. We fall in a lot of the same ways, and we have the same struggle. I mean, we're we're just kind of ordinary people that are just called in different ways. And for me as a pastor, when I take a step back and I kind of my, my seat back in the cheap seats and, and I look out across our church and I sift it through a message like this, here, here's a couple things that I see. I see for us that there are a couple of areas of weakness that stand out for us as a church. If I can just speak personally for a moment. Speaking to our church family, for those that are part of this church, a couple of areas where I believe we've become weak or lazy or where we've just drifted a bit in regards to what it means to show Christ. I think one area of weakness is on the inside when we serve on the inside of our ministry and another area of weakness is on the outside. On the inside, I think we, here's what I'm hearing and I'm hearing it more and more and I'm hearing it from multiple people over the last six months or so, maybe eight months. And here's what I'm hearing. You know, it seems like we have a lot of the same people doing the work. Translation, we need more. That if we're going to show Christ on the inside, and if we're going to put him on display in the inside of this ministry, from preschool to children to students to music to outreach to missions to the whole nine yards, we need to see more people who are, who are invested in this ministry step in and begin to serve so that you don't have that same group of people who begin to, listen, listen closely, who begin to lose their joy of serving because they're carrying a weight of responsibility that cannot be carried by one person alone. You know, if you've ever read the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, for example, Moses had that problem. I mean, Moses is a hero of the faith. Now, I don't know how you, care, how you feel about your father-in-law. For me, I've been blessed with an excellent father-in-law. But for Moses, he had an excellent father-in-law as well. And his father-in-law spoke into his life on one occasion in Exodus chapter 18. Here was the setting. Exodus 18, Moses is leading virtually everybody in the land of Israel. He is carrying the weight of every responsibility so that his father-in-law, Brooks's translation, basically says, Moses, what the world are you doing, boy? You can't carry this responsibility. Everybody comes to you to settle their disputes. You are judge. You are executor. You are, uh, you're, you're doing everything. I mean, you, you execute you know, the, you know, your choices and your will on everybody else's situation. You need help. 
Moses says, there is no one else to help me. And his father-in-law says, if you do not do this, you will surely wear out. And he tells Moses what to do, separate the people into groups. He gives them the numberings. He tells them, you need to point leaders over this group and over this group and over this group. And he basically summarizes in a statement and in a decision saying, you can't carry this load. Spread the load out to other people who can serve as well so that you will last to do what God has called you to do. And I'm saying for us on the inside, I'm hearing more and more comment of people that are saying, you know what, I'm getting weary. Where's the help? Where are those that can come alongside of me? And in light of a message like this, where we look at passages like these, in light of the fact that this is one of the primary things that the body of Christ is called to do, to put Christ on display, listen, we have to understand that a part of that means showing Christ on the inside. Serving so that the body of Christ can accomplish what the body of Christ has been called to do. We've got folks that are doing it well. We've got one who goes to nursing homes, for example, and paints nails for, for women that live there in the nursing homes on a weekly basis. We've got others that take firewood to tent cities around our city. We've got one who goes that I know of and rocks babies in the hospital on Thursday nights just to show Christ to those people and to those staff there that are in need. We've got people that are scattered all around this church that are doing so much to serve and to show Christ. But listen, as we grow, the bar raises. As we grow, the opportunities increase. As we grow, the dangers become more and more prominent. So I don't know how this unpacks for you. All I'm saying for my seat back in the cheap seats is that there are people that are getting tired and we need more to step in and to show Christ. What about from the outside? What does this look like from the outside? You know, it's not all about serving in the church. Anytime you talk about serving and anytime you talk about showing Christ, I think the danger for any pastor is that people are going to interpret that as meaning, well, we need more people in nursery. That's not, <laughs> that's not the only way we serve, folks. We serve also outside the walls. And where the danger on the inside is, we've got the same people doing all the work. On the outside are missed opportunities. What's the primary needs of your neighbors? What's the primary needs of the people that you work with? What, what are their names? <laughs> What's the primary needs of those on your campus? What, when you look at your circles of influence where God has placed you, and you understand that if I look at this as a missionary looks, and I look at the needs, and I look at the people, and I build relationships, where are the greatest needs? And how many opportunities do we miss? Because we don't live life from the perspective of a missionary who's on mission. And part of that mission is to show Jesus where he's placed me. Paul says to Timothy, make sure they know their purpose in so many words. Make sure they know their priorities. How do they remedy the things where they've fallen off? He says, make sure that they're generous. Make sure they're ready to share. Make sure that they do good. Make sure they're rich in good deeds. How does that impact for us individually? It means God has called us and he's equipped us and he creates opportunities to put him on display. We need to take advantage. And it means on the inside of this thing called First Baptist Church of the Islands, he's called us not to just be a, an attender, not just to be a member. It doesn't end there. But he's called us also to be a participant. A participant in the great work that he's doing to reach lives, change families, to impact an island, hopefully to impact the city, and hopefully even beyond. And when you look at the people who come through the walls of the, the doors of this church, we probably run 550 on average, but if we had everybody who comes on a monthly basis here at one time, I'm guessing probably 750. That's just a guess. Probably 750 different faces that are somewhat faithful in attendance on a monthly basis. What if all 750 of those 
were intent on not just attending, not just being a member, but being a participant in the great work of God, showing Christ and putting him on display on the inside and on the outside. I'll tell you what will happen. God will get glory. People will see Christ. And you'll know what life is all about on the inside. Let's pray. God, words mean little. Words mean little when they're not followed up with actions. Lord, we know that James told us not to just be merely hearers of your word, but doers of your word. God, I pray for us as a church, Lord, that we we don't just go through the motions. Lord, I really feel like that's been one of the strengths of this church for a long time is that we don't do that, that we have so many people here that are so serious about investing their lives in others, investing their lives for the sake of the gospel, to put Christ in display, and so many who do that so incredibly well, God. I thank you for the challenge they are to me, for the encouragement they are to me, just in my own personal walk. But God, I know that there are dangers as well, that there is such a tendency when we are blessed to become content and lazy and to lose our focus. And God, we want to be faithful. Lord, we want to be a church that if you were to ever jerk us out of this community, that this community would ache because of our absence. Lord, we want to be that kind of a church that if you were to ever uproot us and move us for some strange reason that none of us could ever see coming, that this community would long for us to come back because of the difference that you make through this ministry. Lord, I pray that we'd be the kind of people that if you ever uproot and move us, that those that we're closest to would ache and long for our return because of the joy that we bring and the service we bring and because of the difference that our lives made. It may have been on a campus or it may have been in a a, a workplace. It may have been in a neighborhood or in a cul-de-sac or in a condo or somewhere else, God. But may we live lives that so clearly put you on display. The Lord, people would long for us to come back if you ever moved us. God, we want you to get glory through our lives. God, we want to know what life is all about, that our Savior himself invested his life, and Lord, you've called us to do the same. And so God, help us to do it well. May you be seen through us, and God, may we commit today that inside and outside the walls of this church that we be marked by those as those who show Jesus. And Lord, for those this morning who don't know you, who've never given their lives to Christ, who has already given his life for theirs, may they be quick this morning right where they sit, seeing their sin and their need of a Savior, to turn from all of that, to lay down their sin and to place their faith in Jesus, even inviting him in to forgive them and to take over. And so, Lord, whatever decisions we need to make today, help us to do them. Help us to make them. Help us to follow you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.